Tonight we're looking in John 17, so I hope you'll take your Bibles and turn to John 17. I'm going to talk about why do churches disagree with each other or one another. John chapter 17, I'll be there in just a second. You wait just a second patiently and I'll get to the passage, the text, okay? A man came to another man who was leaning on the rail overlooking a flooded river. He decided to ask him a couple of questions. He said, are you a Christian or a non-Christian? He said, I'm a Christian. Me too, small world, Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. Me too, what denomination? He replied, Baptist. Me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. Well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? <laughs> he smiled and said, Northern Conservative Baptist. That's amazing. Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? And he said confidently, Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist. Remarkable. Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, Green Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, Eastern Region? And he eagerly replied, Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, Great Lakes Region. What a miracle. Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, Great Lakes Region Con Council of 1912. He boldly declared, Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 19, uh, 1912. To which the first man said, die, heretic, and he pushed him. <laughs> well, we're studying through the summer great questions, biblical answers, and tonight we're going to talk about why do churches disagree with one another? Now, if you've read through the New Testament, I hope that you have, you'll discover there's a number of conflicts among the first Christians. Disagreements about eating meat, sacrifice to idols. That's detailed very clearly in 1 Corinthians. Disagreements about, uh, oh, the proper role of angels and new moon celebrations. That's in Philippians. The Apostle Paul makes a very strong appeal for unity between two women that wouldn't get along in the church. How'd you like to get your name in the Bible because you had odds in your heart against somebody? Wouldn't that be horrible? Come on, now, wouldn't that be horrible? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are some times when there are disagreements. Uh, I'll address this just because I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth. We have a young man that grew up in this church many years ago. His name was Jack Woodring, and I had Jack lined up to come and speak because he asked me to come. Uh, Jack had some real difficulties on the field, and we tried to help him. He had a drinking problem. We actually flew a counselor over, tried to talk to him. His marriage was suffering, and we did the best we could to try to help him. 
it got so bad that finally he decided to resign. When he resigned from his board, I was stuck in the unenviable position of trying to make explanations as to why it happened. And they raised all kinds of questions and tried to make accusations against them that weren't true. And I basically stuck up for them and tried to help them the best I could. When it was all said and done, I told them, I said, Jack, you need to come back and talk to the deacons. I said, you owe the deacons an explanation in our church. The deacons, by the way, I don't know if you know this, they are the mission board. They recommend to the body when we, when we have a deacon or a missionary. And it put the deacons in a delicate situation too. So he said to me that he was wanted to come back and apologize. And I said, that you've been needing to do that for a long time. Well, Jack's position, he is basically now a Seventh-day Adventist. He worships on Saturday. He keeps all the festivals for the Jewish calendar. And uh, I didn't know that because... I do fat, dumb, and stupid really well. And when somebody does something stupid, I don't like to continue following stupid, so I unfriend them. I'd rather be fat, dumb, than stupid than know every sort of detail, and I don't, didn't know all that stuff. And some of the members gave me some of their emails that they had received from him, and I had asked Jack to take our church off of his email and not send my members anything. Because I don't think it's fair for us to support somebody and then him work us on the sides. So once I was made aware of that situation, I basically sent one of his emails and asked him, I said, do you believe this? Every word. I said, we can't have you. I won't allow you to be in my pulpit and not believe the right way and call, cause confusion in my congregation. So Jack Woodring won't be here next week. You say, Pastor, what do you call that? Exactly what I'm preaching about, I've lived this week. That's where I've been all week. That's what I've been doing, messing with that. So <laughs> this sermon, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to preach on next week, but I'm not going to have any problems with bringing up something I'm going to have to mess with like this one. <laughs> I'm hoping next week I'll skate. It'll be easier. I, I like easier. I'll be real honest with you. All right. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to talk about why churches disagree, why there's disagreement in churches. When you read John 17, John 17 is called the high priestly prayer of Christ. Um, let me help you. Jesus has had dinner with the guys. It's the Last Supper. Remember that? And from 13, 14, 15, 16, he's been talking to them. It's called... Uh, 
uh, a discourse, a sermon. Jesus preaches a sermon to these guys. Now, when you get to 17, Jesus begins to pray. I'll show you why I say that. If you look down to verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but I pray for them which is, you've given unto me for their mind. So this is a prayer. It almost is an interesting thing where God lets you listen into Jesus praying. Isn't that kind of cool? We don't get to hear a lot of his prayers, but we know he prayed a lot. He was praying up in the mountains. Sometimes he'd spend all night alone with the Lord. Sometimes he'd pray short prayers as he'd break a little lad's lunch and give thanks. Remember that? So you don't get to hear a lot of his prayers, but this is a prayer that took place somewhere between the Last Supper and going to the Garden of Gethsemane. All right? So he's, he's this, some say Jesus was walking and praying as he wrote this, as this passage was being wrote. Okay? John the, John the Beloved is actually the one that later on brings it up and writes it down. Now, when you read this chapter, this is a chapter that Jesus prays, the longest recorded prayer of Christ in the Bible. And as he begins to pray, he prays basically for three things, a lot more than three things, but if you kind of break it down. It's, he prays for himself to be glorified. Look at verse 4. It says, I, glor- I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work whereunto thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me. So, uh, Jesus prays that God will glorify him. By, how many think Jesus did a fairly decent job while he was here? Amen. Yeah. And he set aside all of those divine attributes. He doesn't use them on his own volition. He always uses it under the Father's direction and the Father's obedience. Remember that? Now he says, okay, glorify me. And then as you read along, he goes a step further. He says in verses 6 to 9, he says, I I I want you to take care of my disciples. Protect them, Lord, and sanctify them. If If you drop down, look at verse number 12. He says in verse 12, he says it this way. He says, while I was with them, the them, there's the disciples in the world, I kept them in thy name that thou would gavest me, I've kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus has protected them. And then he prays, Lord, sanctify him. Verse 17, you know this one probably. This one's pretty familiar. He says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy Word is truth. You say, Pastor, what's the process of sanctification? God's setting us apart. God's setting us apart to become more like Christ. How, how do we become more like Christ? It's always connected to the Bible. It's through the truth of God's Word. That's why if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to read your Bible. Y'all listen to me? If you're going to be a good Christian, you need to memorize the Bible. You need to think about the Bible. The Bible doesn't need to be something that you throw in the black of your car in that back windshield area and leave it there all week and then pick it up when you come back to church on Sunday. How many, how many can say amen to that? Amen. I think you need to read your Bible if you're going to be sanctified. Amen. So he prays that they'd be protected, they'd be sanctified. Now, as you look down to about verse number 20, he's going to pray a prayer of, of uh, Lord, unify him. He's praying for unity. So In your notes tonight, the first point is Jesus' prayer for unity. And let's read verse 20. It says, and this is really what I want to talk about. He says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. 
Now, let me, let me just tell you what that verse is talking about. He's saying there's a bunch of people out there that are going to get saved somewhere because of the preaching of the disciples. He's praying for future believers. And by the way, look around at each other. We are future believers. Amen. We were saved by the preaching of the disciples and by the preaching of that first generation group of Christians and by that second generation and that third generation and that fourth generation. All the way down, that still works for today. He's praying for us, notice, that we would be unified. He says in verse number 21, he says, And the glory which you gave me I've given them that they may be one. Even as we are one, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as they have loved me. Now, Jesus is praying for our unity. Jesus is praying that God would make us perfectly one. So Jesus focuses on the future and he basically says this, if my church ever has a chance, my believers are going to have to get along. Hereby shall all men know that they are my disciples if they argue, criticize, say bad things about each other. No, he says if they love one another, right? Come on, I'm not misquoting that verse. I just want to make a point. Does the world see whether or not Christians get along? Does the world see whether or not Christians can agree? Do you think it ever confuses the world when they got the original church of God number one and about 50 yards down the street it says the original church of God number two? Well, it's up in Kentucky, I've seen it. You think anybody wonders when they drive by like that? I would say so. I would say so. Now, why was that so important? You know, one thing about the disciples, every once in a while, they would display a spirit of competition. They would display a, a spirit of uh, uh, who's the greatest. And one of the things that the Lord was Addressing here, fellas, if you're not careful, you're going to be so filled with disunity that the world's message is going to be convoluted because they can't understand why you don't like each other. Come on, smile at me. And if Jesus prayed about that 2,000 years ago, I wonder how he feels today. If 12 guys couldn't get along, I wonder what he looks at Christianity today. I wonder what he prays today. I'll bet something similar. Now, what's the basis of true Christian unity? Well, that's pretty easy. If you look back to chapter 17, verses 2 through 5, he's talking about here about himself. You say the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his glory. Why are we here? What's the purpose of the church? To bring glory to the pastor? No, the purpose of the church is to bring glory to who? Yeah, Jesus Christ. And so uh, when you read this and when you try to understand what's going on, you know, the bottom line is Jesus basically says Christian harmony isn't based on the externals. 
It's based on the internals. It's based on the internals of the spirit that lives within us. And he says, we got to look beyond the elements of our, of our birth, our race, our color, our abilities, and we got to build our fellowship on the essentials of the new birth. We're one in Christ. We're born again. That's what we have fellowship on. The parameters of oneness include all believers. And Jesus doesn't just want us to get along with a few people. I actually think he prays here, may they all, that's a big word, be one. That's what he prayed. May they all be one. If you read on verse 23, Jesus longs for us to become perfectly one. Wow, isn't that incredible? So true believers in Christ share a common unity or community with believers in the past, the present, and the future. Now, let's kind of move along. When you look at John 17, I see four expectations about unity. And I got to kind of move quickly tonight. So I, how many notes you got a real long outline? Are you sweating it? You need to be. <laughs> what are the four expectations that Jesus had? Number one, the parameter of oneness includes all believers. Jesus doesn't want us just to get along with a few people. No, Jesus actually wants us to be one. See, true believers in Christ, we have a common community with believers in the past, the present, and the future. Now, let me give you the second one. The pattern for oneness is linked to the unity within the Trinity. He prays this prayer. He said, Lord, help them to get along each, with each other the way you and I get along. How many have ever seen Jesus and God the Father having any disagreements? You ever seen him tell the Holy Spirit to jump in the lake? You see him voting the Holy Spirit out? Yes or no? He says, Lord, may their oneness be like the oneness that we enjoy and have always enjoyed. Isn't that an interesting concept? May they also be in us. Verse 22, that may they even be as we are one. You see, the unity of Christ wants us to have is so intimate and so personal and so vital. It's patterned after. It's based upon the relationship that the Godhead enjoys. That's an amazing thought. Well, let me give you the third one. The purpose of oneness is to accelerate evangelism. Verse 21 says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. If, if the world could see Christians being like Christians, the world would say, hey, I want that. Mm -hmm. uh, man, do they ever love each other. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be great? Yes. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we treated each other with respect? And with loving carefulness in our, in our relationships. And the world saw that and said, man, they treat each other the way Jesus treats them. What a witness that would be. So Jesus says, hey, this is the way you evangelize. But then look at the fourth one. The practice of oneness puts God's reputation on display in the world. Verse 22 basically says uh, that uh, we've been given the glory that was given to Christ. That word glory represents the visible manifestation of all God's attributes. When we're united, the world will stand up and take notice of God because they see God glorified in us. 
Listen to this verse, Matthew 5 and 16. It says this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Listen now, and glorify your father, which is in heaven. That's what the Bible says. If Jesus prayed for unity, then why are so many church, so many churches not unified? That word church, interesting word, means called out from among them. There are two ways the word church is used in the scripture. One word is the, used for the universal church. For example, when I talk about the universal church, it represents all the born-again believers all the way back from all walks of life, from every culture, from every country around the world. One of the greatest things about going on a missions trip, in my opinion, is meeting Christians in another culture, and immediately there's a bond. And you sit there and you put your arms around a brother or sister in Christ, and they love the same Jesus that you love, only 12,000 miles away. Wow, it's pretty cool. You see, that's the church we're talking about, the universal church. This is where people are joined as one people and they share one spirit and they worship one Lord, the Bible says. But then there's a, a unique church or a local church where there is one universal church. It's represented by many unique churches that are scattered around the world. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. The Bible was still being written and God would have said, to the church of God that's in Goodlitzville. That's the idea. You see, there were unique churches, local churches that are a part of that universal church, but in a location. Now, when we talk about local churches, I don't think the universal church has any trouble getting along. But I've been in some local churches that did. Come on, smile at me. Yeah. So let's, let's consider some cautions. I need to make sure I cover all my bases tonight because I don't want you walking out of here not really understand what I'm saying. I'm for unity. I think we ought to have unity. But what are some cautions? Well, I think if we're going to be what we ought to be with unity, you've got to abandon some extreme separations. We have to abandon some extreme separations. Some believers refuse to acknowledge there are true believers in any other churches. You heard that old joke, I'm sure, about St. Peter giving a tour of heaven and he walked down this one little area and he said, shh. This is where the Baptists live. They think they're the only ones here. By the way, we could put Church of Christ. We could put, don't matter what you put there. You can change it interchangeably. There are some that honestly think they have an exclusive lock on the truth. Now, I love being a Baptist, but that doesn't make me spiritually superior to anybody. Amen. If somebody's a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, they're my brother and sister in Christ. Here's what I'm convinced of. We need new churches. 
You think we need more churches in Goodlessville? Sure we do. You honestly think with the amount of people moving into Nashville that we got the corner on the market? Really? Hopefully you don't feel that way. I, I, I think we need new churches. I think we need revitalized churches. You listening to me? I, I'd say that we need some revived Christians. Because if there was ever a time that we need to reach our community, it is now. I hope you'll do me a favor. I hope that you'll begin to really pray about, we got a whole group of houses going in right over here behind City Hall. They've opened up a whole area up there. Don't you think it'd be wise for Metro Baptists to do their best Amen. to make sure these new people moving in at least know we're here? Amen. Come on, smile at me. Don't you think that'd be good? Yeah. Yeah. Avoid extreme separatism. Jesus said it this way. He said, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers. That's what we ought to be praying. Well, let me give you a second one. Avoid ecumenical sloppiness. Ecumenical sloppiness. Let me help you with that. Ecumenical to be means all-inclusive. All-inclusive. You say, Pastor, what is the thing that ought to guide us in what we do? Look at verse 17 in your Bible. The Bible says in John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, I hope you recognize not everybody believes the truth. This is a yes, this is a no. Do you recognize that? I'm fixing to go to the Philippines, and one of the things that I always watch when I go to the Philippines, there's a dude over there who wears a white suit, and he's got all these beautiful Filipino girls all dressed in white. I mean, there's not an ugly, I know there's ugly women in the Philippines because I've seen them. But not on that television show. I mean, these are knockouts. And you know what that guy thinks? He thinks he's Jesus Christ. Seriously. Now, he's a nut. I don't know how to say it any nicer. The guy is a stinking nut. You say, Pastor, you think we ought to link up with that nut? No. How do we figure out what we're supposed to do? we got to get in God's word and find out what the truth is. You know, one of the great things about the Bereans, the book of Acts says that they, they went home and they studied the word of God daily to see what things were really what they were. They got in the Bible and they studied the Bible. How do we decide what's right and what's wrong? God's decided it for us right in his word. And so we have to be smart enough to read his word. So we don't just put our arms around everybody. We don't just embrace every church because some churches are nutty. How's that for being nice? You see, the truth alone has to determine our alignments and our partnerships. And frankly, we're not all headed in the same direction. 
And to be quite honest with you, some of these churches, we don't even serve the same God. So we have to be smart enough to get in the word of God and study to find out what things are what they are. Malcolm Mulgridge said about the World Council of Churches, he said they agree on almost everything because they believe almost nothing. We got to be careful. And then the third one I'd say is this, adhere to unity, not uniformity. There's a vast difference between unity and uniformity. You know, it's possible to be diverse and not divided. I know we're all distinct pieces of the puzzle and variety is valuable because we all have different gifts and abilities and personalities and thoughts and opinions. But you'll never find where the Bible calls us to be same. The Bible calls us to be one. There's a difference. There's a difference between oneness and sameness. That means that we can disagree, this is a novel concept, without being disagreeable. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. It's not simply we believe, but how we behave. We can have harmony even though we may not be quietly on the same page. Unfortunately, most divisions in most churches are over taste, culture, not doctrine. I've been your pastor 27 years. We've never had a doctrinal issue in this church ever. We haven't. We've had some disagreements over taste. We still do. And we still will. Well, I don't, I don't like that kind of music. You ever heard that? Come on, smile at me, you liars. Some of you in there say, oh, we got that old people music. Na, 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 three, four times. <laughs> and then there's some of you sit out there and you say, 7 Eleven. Seven words, 11 times. <laughs> Come on, smile at me. Yes or no? And you know, normally the ones that really like that three, four time on the music, they got gray hair. Little bit of wrinkles on their face. And you know the ones that like that 7-Eleven music? It's all the kids and the younger folks. They go, oh, yeah. I go home and I say, I learned a new song. He loves you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> got the song. <laughs> Smile at me. Come on, smile at me. Some of you, man, you wouldn't smile if Jesus was up here. <laughs> Augustine said it this way, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. You get what he said? 
Say it one more time. In essentials, unity. You say, Pastor, what's an essential? We're never going to change on this book being God's word. You listening to me? We're never going to change on Jesus being virgin born. We're never going to change on the fact that Christ died for our sins vicariously on the cross. We're never going to change that on the third day Jesus was raised from the dead. We're never going to change on the fact that someday Jesus is coming again. That is an essential. You listening? That's not up for grabs. That'll always be that way. But, you know, you go a little further with that. Hey, non-essentials, liberty. You say, well, pastor, you know, I believe salvation more this direction and you preached it more that direction. Well, if I'm preaching salvation by grace through faith, I'm getting the essential. Amen. Are you with me? Are you with me? That's the main thing. Now, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you, that's important. But there is some question as to when that takes place. I'll give you another illustration. I believe Jesus could come back tonight. Do you believe that? Yes or no? I believe his return could be imminent. But somebody comes along and they say, well, Pastor, you know what? I believe it could be mid-trib. You get to go through the first three and a half years. By the way, that doesn't make you a heretic. Wow. So I'm going up at the front end. Amen. You with me? But that's not a deal breaker. How many understand that? And we need to give each other some breathing room. I think he's turned into a liberal. <laughs> no, the essentials are the important thing. You listening to me? Well, why do churches disagree with one another? Let me run through it fast. First of all, there was a dispersion. Let me help you with this. The big reason there's differences in churches goes all the way back to when Jesus got his disciples together and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And one went that way, and one went this way, and one went that way, and one went that way, and they all went into different cultures. And Christianity was influenced and contextualized by all of these different cultures. Oh, it didn't necessarily change the message, but those cultures became part of Christianity. I'll give you an example. How many of you remember in the book of Acts, they had a little bit of problems with going to the church barbecue? Did they? Yes or no? Some said, we want it well done. Boy, what a waste of meat. And some said, we want it medium rare. And there was a big argument about the meat. One was Jewish, one was Gentile. Come on, how many remember that? Uh, the message was fine, but kosher rules, Jewish stuff. So there was a dispersion. Well, then every once in a while, there were some doctrinal issues. Some churches disagreed because of doctrinal differences. This is no small matter because Jude says in verse 3, it says, let us earnestly, vigorously contend for the faith. There are certain things we need to fight for, non-negotiables. We're not going to compromise on the inerrancy of scripture, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, and other key beliefs. 
but they doctrinally had some problems. And when you read the New Testament, that one's pretty easy because every once in a while, Paul comes along in Galatians and says, how could you fall by, from salvation by grace? You've left the grace position. Now you're telling people they got to get circumcised? No, that's not right. That's another gospel. That's not the same one that I preached. And then depravity. One of the big reasons congregations splinter and denominations divide simply because they're self-appointed, self-righteous, and, and selfish sinners in these denominations and churches. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he says, if you guys keep biting, devouring one another, take heed, you're going to consume each other. You can only bite so many times and then the flesh is gone. Then there was divisiveness. There was a spirit of divisiveness that settled on Christians. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And then you've always got the spiritual group. I follow Jesus. And Paul says, good night. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Come on, man. Why are you so divisive over that? Who gives a rip who baptized you? And then there's disputes. First part of Acts 15, that, that eating meat and whether or not you could eat it rare or medium rare comes to a head. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Man, what are you going to do with these Gentiles? They're messing up the church picnic. Early church says, eat it medium well. Cook the blood out. For those Jewish brethren that are worried, you're eating the flesh. And then the, the blood is the flesh. And you're eating the life. Cook it till it's done. It's better to have harmony and well done hamburgers. Amen. Yes or no? And it became an issue of salvation going to be by grace? Or by works. And they ruled for grace, by the way. And then sometimes there's disagreements. Classic illustrations, Paul and Barnabas. The Bible says the contention between them was so sharp that they made a brand new missions team. Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas and off they went. By the way, I think Paul was right. You don't hear much about Barnabas, John Mark. They kind of fade off the scene. Paul's still going strong. Which one do you think the Lord was for? Mm. Eh, Paul. Paul. Sometimes devotion, the final factor... Sometimes churches disagree and divide because of mission or methodology. When you read through the history of denominations, you'll discover groups often splinter because some believers are looking to go deeper in their faith or become more outward focused. Romans 12, 11 said, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In short, short they wanted to grow. They wanted to go with the gospel in order to reach their neighbors and to reach the nation. 
All right, now quickly. What about Baptists? Now I want you to look at your paper real quick. Three main branches of Christianity. You got Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and you have Protestants. Now there are some that say there are 33,000 Protestant denominations. I don't personally think there's that many. I think it's probably closer to 3,000. I think some of them are duplicates. Same thing, different name. Okay. I don't think there's quite 3,000, 33,000. I think it's more like three, about a tenth of that. But, you know, in, in America, there's over 60 different types of Baptists in America. 60 different types, groups. Now, what, what does a, a Baptist believe? Well, let me say this. Now, stay with me here because I'm a, I'm a small B Baptist. I do not believe that you can trace our heritage unequivocally back all the way to John the Baptist. I don't believe that. Besides that, John the Baptist turned into kind of a nut, and his followers really got nutty, okay? So if you want to be linked up to them, go for it. I don't have any problems. Most of my relatives are from Kentucky, so I got enough nuts in the family, if you know what I mean. All right, so we'll just leave that alone. But I do believe this. Listen to me just for a second. I do believe there's always been a group that was very Baptistic. By that, I mean there was groups in the past that you can trace back that believed very similarly to what we believe. Very similarly. They are not always called Baptists. Sometimes they're called Morovians, and I could keep going with that. Anabaptists, there are, there are lots of different names. The first Baptist in America was a guy named Roger Williams who started a church in like 1610, something like that, in Providence, Rhode Island, and that was the first Baptist in America. They existed. They were more Puritans. You, you're familiar with that word. Would you agree with that? They were more of the Puritan line, and they met in England and places like that. And it goes, you can trace it back that far in Europe. But the first one in America was a guy named Roger Williams. I've been to that church. I've stood behind the pulpit, got my picture made. It was a big deal when you're 21. You know what I mean? But what really makes us who we are is what we believe. Now, in your notes, you have a Baptist acrostic. Basically, we believe in biblical authority. You say, what does that mean? It means we take the Bible in all matters of faith and practice. What we believe, we find in the Bible. How we practice our faith, we find in the Bible. Okay, that's what it means. Uh, the autonomy of a local church. Uh, churches are self-governing. We don't have a hierarchy. Somebody asked me, how long have you been pastor at Metro? 27 and a half years. Wow, how'd you get there to stay that long? I said, because they didn't vote me out. <laughs> and they came out of a Methodist background. They said, man, we get three or four years, and we got a good one. They moved into the next place. And I said, our, ch our church, they fed me too long, and now I won't leave. I'm like a stray dog. <laughs> we don't have a hierarchy that tells us what to do. We're self-governing. Let me give you the next one. Priesthood of the believers. Well, that basically means we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. 
I am a believer priest, you are a believer priest. I don't have to have anybody to introduce me to the Lord. Jesus Christ took care of all that. Amen. You listening to me? Uh, the, the next one, two ordinances. How, how many want to bet it's baptism and communion? Amen. Yeah. Um, individual soul liberty. I have the right or the liberty to choose what I believe and what I think according to the dictates of my conscience or my soul. I don't have anybody that comes along and says, you have to believe this. No, no, no. I get to choose that. I can choose to be wrong. I've told you on several occasions, if you don't agree with me, you can choose to be wrong. <laughs> that was a joke. Some of you must not get it. All right. A saved, <laughs> baptized church membership. We believe in order to be a member of our church, you need to be saved and you need to be dunked. Deep water. Two officers of the church. First Timothy chapter 3, the pastor and the deacons. And then separation of church and state. You know, if you go back and study Baptist church history, uh, there was a big fight. You know how... Pennsylvania was a certain denomination and New England was a certain, and the Midwest was certain denominations and we had, and one of the big fights in the early days was we're going to make this Roman Catholicville. And they said, no, 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 no. That's not, that government won't work. We need to have freedom of religion. Separation of church and state. Baptists have always talked about that. That's been a big deal. So when we talk about Baptist, basically that's where we stand. I will also add that Baptists uh, have been big on missions. They always have been. Evangelism. It's always been a big deal with Baptists. We sent the first missionaries out of America in 1803. Adoniram Judson left Massachusetts and went all the way to Burma on those old Yankee schooners. You remember those old... Boats take them six, eight, nine months to get there. Those were Baptists that did that. We've always been big on emissions, on evangelism. Now, let's talk about communion and baptism. We call it an ordinance. Notice in our church you never hear it called a sacrament. It's because we don't believe it's a sacrament. A sacrament has some kind of grace value to it. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you can't be saved. You can't know that you're on your way to heaven unless you're baptized as a baby. That's the first of seven steps. Your good last one is administer the rites by the priest, your last rites. There's seven ducks, and you got to get them in a row to have a shot. And you got to have holy communions in there. That's one of those seven sacraments. No, we don't believe it's a sacrament. There's no saving value in communion or baptism. It's an ordinance that Christ gave to the church. We practice two. Now, if you're free will Baptist, you practice three. They're the dirty feet Baptists. So they wash feet. But we don't do that. We only have two ordinances, okay? Jesus only instituted two ordinances. That's why we believe that. Now, when we talk about uh, baptism and communion, let me answer a couple of questions. What about infant baptism? You ever notice in a Baptist church we don't accept that? By the way, if you don't realize that, we don't. We believe in believer's baptism. That means after you're saved, 
Let me ask you a question. How many little babies at the age of six weeks old are saved? None. They're safe, but they're not saved. You need to be saved, then you get baptized. Are you with me? So somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I was baptized as a baby. I said, well, have you been saved? Yeah, you need to get baptized. That's what we teach. Uh, what about uh, if you're baptized as an infant, do I need to be baptized again as a believer? The obvious answer is yes. What about communion? Well, let's look at your Bibles real quick. And I got to stop like right now. Let me do it real fast. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn over there real fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to talk about a few correctives real quick. We're going to talk about communion just for a second. It's a memorial meal that's celebrated with dignity and decorum. And the church at Corinth messed it up. You say, Pastor, what did they do? They made it into a party. They started coming together certain times and they'd sometimes get drunk. You imagine getting drunk before you have communion? I don't think that's the kind of decorum God's talking about. Would you agree with that? And they had this agape meal where they'd have a big dinner and they'd get drinking and, and then what they would do, they had poor folks that really needed to eat and they'd tell them one time and get together a couple hours early and the poor people would come ready to eat and there was no food left because the other fat ones ate it all. So the church at Corinth had made a mockery out of communion. And when you read this passage, uh, when you look at 11.23, Paul gives these instructions. He said, I, I receive from the Lord that which I deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the night which he's betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he break it and said, this is my body which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. First thing is, communion's a time to remember. Let me ask you a question. Now, don't raise your hand, because I'm really not trying to embarrass anybody. How many of us this week thought about the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins? Was that something we consciously remembered this week? It's amazing how many times it just, yeah, we know that. We've, we've got that figured, but it's not something we remember. You say, Pastor, why do you have communion? Because there comes a time every once in a while we need to remember. It's like, hey, you need to never forget this. I died for you on the cross. And when we have communion, we remember that Christ died for us. Well, let's look at the second one. Not only do we remember, we rejoice. Look at verse number 26. It says, for as often you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back and remember what Christ did for us on the cross, but now we proclaim, we announce publicly, we declare, we perpetuate, we publish the bread and the cup tell the story of redemption and we look ahead. The culmination of history, Jesus someday is going to come and take us home and we're going to have communion with him. Now that will be a communion service. Would you agree? We remember what he did. We look forward to what he's going to do. But notice as you look through this passage, we look back and we remember. We look forward and we rejoice. We look within, we repent. The Bible says, 
Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So once we remember by looking back and rejoice by looking forward, we can't help but look inside. And what his point is this, we should be cautioned that approaching his table in an unworthy manner is something we ought not to do. He paid too great a price for us to make a mockery out of it. Yes or no? Yeah. So we repent, we look within. The last one is we reconcile, we look around. Let a person examine himself, verse 28. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for everyone that eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. And if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it's not for judgment. He said, why would you turn the Lord's table into something To be ugly to each other. We started off tonight talking about Jesus praying for unity. If there was everything in the church that ought to cause unity, it ought to be the Lord's table. It's an inbuilt deal that God says, you know what? People are people and some peoples are not heads. And you're going to rub shoulders with a knothead once in a while and they're going to tick you off. But don't stay ticked off. You're going to have the Lord's table. Forgive them. Ask him for forgiveness. You know, church is an amazing thing. Such a diverse background. From diverse cultures and churches and all that, and we all come together. And God says, all right, forget all those differences. And those that rubbed you raw <laughs> and get this thing straightened out because now we're going to do something that ought to help. Ought to help. You know, in the Bible, dining together signified two things, appropriation and participation. By eating the bread, drinking from the cup, we're saying we've received redemption and we're declaring that we're community. They're my brother and sister in Christ, and I'm not going to have aught in my heart towards them. Isn't it great? Our ushers are over here, kind of sit over there by themselves tonight. You'd think they were mad at the preacher, you know? <laughs> but, fellas, I want you to come, if you will. We're going to have a word of prayer, and they're going to hand out the elements, and we'll be participating real quick here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless now as we participate. God, help us to not have any awe in our heart towards any person in the church. God, help us to love each other. Help us to care about one another. Help us to be one, even as you are one. In Jesus' name, amen.